0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today both authors of the fabulous new book published by Oxford University Press titled The Suffragist Peace, How Women Shape the Politics of War. From the title, you can already tell this is going to be a fascinating conversation with both of the authors, Dr. Robert Traeger and Dr. Jocelyn Barnhart, who in this book examine how the political influence of women once they receive the vote at the ballot box, have shaped the course of war and peace in a bunch of different times and places. So I don't want to give too much away, um, but Jocelyn and Robert, I'm very pleased to welcome you both to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Before we dive into the very interesting findings of your book, would you mind each introducing yourselves a bit and explaining not just why you decided to write this, but also maybe why you decided to write it together? am um, going maybe to Jocelyn first.
1: Uh, sure. So uh, I um, am a professor of international relations at University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm also currently a senior research scientist at Google DeepMind in London. Um, and the topic was very much relevant to things that I was considering at the time related to public opinion, how public opinion shapes foreign policy. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it essentially bubbled up from these particular uh, interests, also in the democratic peace theory and potential explanations for why we see democracies that, that uh, supposedly don't fight each other. Um, and so that those were, you know, all of these, it just kind of brought a lot of these particular uh, I- issues together. And, um, yeah, I'll pass to Robert.
2: I'm Robert Traeger. I'm a professor of political science at UCLA and also the international uh, governance lead at the Center for the Governance of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, Why did I decide to write this book? Well, it was actually, it started by happenstance looking at data that uh, I had collected, actually experiments, so-called survey experiments on human populations, and just noticing these huge gender differences in uh, people's preferences over war and peace and and whether they would advocate for their own country to to go to war or not. And I had a bunch of data, not just from the United States, but we'd collected data also from Egypt, Israel, and Turkey at that time. And we saw the same huge differences in all these different places, Uh, and so that, that got us thinking. And we wondered, uh, I I think Jocelyn and I had a conversation in w- which we wondered if this wasn't sort of maybe the simplest possible explanation for the democratic peace, which uh, people have said is, is like a law in international relations, but uh, nobody seems to think we have a really convincing explanation of
0: always interesting to understand kind of how initial motivations come together and then result in the book uh, that we can now, of course, read. So thank you for giving us that bit of background context. Um, And jumping off a little bit, Robert, on what you were just saying, I was wondering if you could tell us more about sort of why we should be thinking about gender differences when we're looking into war and peace and preferences around that. Yeah, I think
2: that's actually a great question. Because, um, you know, the first thing that we did was we looked at differences in averages. Uh, so people who self identified as, as men versus people who self identified as women, And of course, we'd like to have more nuanced categories than that. But we didn't have them, the, we just had data on that. Um, and so we looked at these averages, but I think it's fair to ask, you know, should we, should we actually look at averages? Because, um, you know, not, not all averages An average might be used for a political purpose. And, um, you know, maybe in some cases, uh, it, it's the wrong sort of question to ask. Um, so, you know, did it make sense in this case? Well, we thought, we thought that it did. We thought either from a constructed gender, gender perspective, or from, Uh, a biological perspective, there was, it was at least worth asking the question if there was a difference here. And then when we looked at data, it's like, well, there is a huge difference here. Uh, There is a huge difference. And it's not just in one place, but it's all around the world. Um, So, uh, so yeah, so we, so our view was um, we better figure this out. (laughs)
1: And I'll just add there that, I mean, I I think that, you know, that's a kind of a fundamental faith and that democracies are are working as we think that they should, uh, that in essence, if you have these systematically different preferences that are then integrated into uh, an electorate, that those should in some way. Uh, you know, be have some uh, effect on on political outcomes. And I think it was also also just, you know, a, a level of intrigue as to whether or not we could find evidence that if, if or not, if in fact that was the case.
0: I'd love to start us back in the earlier chronological part of the book, um, because this idea of there being such distinct preferences for war and peace based on gender is very much something I read in the book that you guys found that, um suffragists, people who wanted women to have the vote, very much believed in, right? That there was this idea that there would be a difference if women were to be involved in politics. Um, Now we can then get later on into kind of whether or not that's true and how that's worked out in practice. But Jocelyn, could you maybe start us off explaining kind of what the beliefs were at the time around gender differences, what this had to do with preferences of war and peace, in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century time. Absolutely. I mean, I think this was
1: a, a really fascinating to to go back and and look at the world from that perspective, of you know, very early and fundamental suffragists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Carrie Chapman Cat, uh, and you know, they had a, a view that you know they they wanted the vote, but the vote would be in service of uh, a desire for other things. One fundamental example of which was peace, and so so they really did see that there were these. Um, You know, at the time, I think it was obviously far more common to talk about kind of essentialized views of gender. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, you know, had this this famous um, speech <laughs> entitled The Destructive Male in which she she really, uh, you know, suggests that the male element uh, is destructive and selfish and violence-loving and acquisitive and, you know, a, quite a, a, a negative depiction of what masculinity was at that time. And in contrast, they saw a feminine um Honor as being much more bound to, you know, to to essentially purity and chastity, and and uh, you know that the maternal um, role of the woman essentially placed them in a in a far different uh, position. They they talked both about, you know, they clearly talked about gender differences and, and preferences for war and peace, and they did it both from kind of an, an angle of socialization and an angle of from of, of innate tendencies. So that you definitely saw this notion that. That there was this innate desire within men for status and competition, uh, and that women, kind of irrespective of their mental training or their socialization, tended to revolt against war. Um, they also appreciated potential social socialized elements of this. That you know, if business and politics were really the domain of men, these were areas of competition, and that this competition, these notions, were instilled into young men, uh, and that this you know essentially translated into masculine notions of honor on the battlefield whereas you know women your young women young girls were were nurtured in very different ways uh, that you know they also saw as, a, as a, a foundation for these these later on later differences
0: and so can you tell us a bit more about kind of given this difference in belief of fundamentally what one group and the other group are kind of meant to be thinking how did women try and challenge these masculinist beliefs about war and peace and did did they get anywhere with these challenges
1: yeah uh, they um they certainly wanted to so in the era before voting uh, they you know you had these early suffragist campaigns uh, in which it you know one of the the kind of um, the, the most fundamental things that was called for uh, in the Seneca Falls in 1848 was, in fact, the vote, right? They called for many, many freedoms and liberties for women uh, throughout those hearings, but really calling for the vote was the one that was, you know, seemed to be the most gasp-inducing, in a way. Um, but at the time, obviously, it would take them many, many decades and uh, around the world to achieve that, and in the interim, they realized that, you know, they could resort to things like marching in the streets, uh, as they did in one thousand, nine hundred and fourteen, uh, with the women's peace parade, as you know, conflict was you know starting to bubble up within Europe. You know, you would see fifteen hundred women in all dressed all in black marching down Fifth Avenue, uh, and, and essentially protesting the idea. You know, as, as I think Carrie Chapman Katz said, that they were trying to to you know they envisioned women as in essence humanizing governments. Um, and you know, I, I like also the idea that Julia Ward Howe in the United States uh, had this original conception of a Mother's Day in 1870, which was not as we conceive of it now, uh, but that it was motivated by mothers wanting to essentially call to attention the, you know, Pain inflicted on mothers through the act of war. It was 1870. It was a time of the Franco-Prussian War, and so Mother's Day at that time was far less festive. It was much more about women giving public speeches about the the horrors of war and, um, you know, why mothers in particular were uh, well positioned to, to speak against that. Um, so. Yeah. So, so you know, at that time, this was what they could do. They could engage in kind of traditional activist activities. Obviously, when World War One uh, s- erupted, then it actually became, you know, seen as potentially treasonous to still talk in these ways against war. And so there were these kinds of fundamental tensions between women activating or active um, acting for peace and acting for the vote uh, at, at world, you know, at the beginning of World War One. Um, but yeah, that. that they, they were essentially had voice, but only, you know, in, in a public domain that there was no sort of uh, fundamental integration of those voices into the democratic process.
0: Of course, though, women do get the vote, thankfully, in a whole bunch of places. In fact, in most places, um, though at various different times and in all sorts of convoluted ways. um, But that allows us then to have the data, Robert, that you were talking about collecting around kind of what happens in practice, what happens when those voices are able to be expressed at the ballot box. Um, So, Robert, can you tell us a bit about that data? Are there gender differences when we actually... Analyze what people do in a voting booth?
2: Oh, yes, there are. Uh, So, as I've said it, across time and place, uh, there are these differences that we see in the data. And uh, it's not just us who have analyzed that. A bunch of folks have gone out uh, and looked at surveys that are done around the time of conflicts uh, to see uh, what the who approves of sending troops uh, off to war, for instance, is is a question that is is very often asked. And even if we go back to the earliest days of polling, which is actually the Gallup organization around the time of World War Two, uh, we see exactly this same gender gap on on um, the use of force. And what's interesting is that, you know, to, to say, I suppose the obvious, uh, neither men nor women should be essentialized and neither neither are women uh, pacifists, nor are men warmongers. And uh, it's interesting, though, that the same factors seem to influence both genders. That is, you know, if women don't want to go to war, by a large majority, probably a large majority of men don't want to go to war either. And when the reverse uh, is the case, you know, the, the genders also trend together. And so Actually, when we look at the at the time series over time, we see that men and women are sort of varying together. Uh, whether they're going up or they're going down, it's it's usually happening together because most of it seems like often the same factors are affecting both men and women. But there is this gap, this difference, where on average, uh, women are less approving than than men are. So. Uh, One of the things we did, uh, since people had already collected a lot of data on uh, polling from particular conflicts, but we wanted to drill down into what was going on. And so we actually collected all of these survey experiments that people in the international relations field had been doing. They'd done quite a few of them uh, in um, sort of context. So what they're doing is they're explaining context, some context uh, where they think that, war is maybe plausible or but but not a not a certainty that the population would be in favor of it and um and we could use that to study a little bit more about what was actually actually driving things Um, so the first thing that we did is do uh a sort of significance test using all the data from all these different experiments that many people had done and that was sort of fun because every one of them had a had a gender gap in in the use of force And, uh, and so when we pulled the data and you can argue whether we should really be pulling data, but anyway, we pulled the data just for fun. We did a significance test. And I think there were 67 zeros, uh, before the non-zero in the significance test. So that's like, you know, way more, a much higher level of certainty, for instance, than theoretical physicists, uh, insist on when they're looking for like the Higgs-Boson or, or something like that. So we're like a really high level of, of significance uh, for, for what it's worth. Um, but then when we drill down into the data, we find that uh, women uh, were um, less approving of uh, kind of maximalist shares in a conflict. So if there's going to be some negotiated solution, uh, and that solution is going to really favor their side, women were less approving of that than men were. They seem to be more approving of a 50-50 compromise than, than men were on average. Um, and one of the most interesting findings is that the women were less interested in fighting for reputation. So That was really fascinating because, um, because I think a lot of conflicts in, in some ways are fought over reputation, even if, even if it's not talked about in those terms. Uh, might be talked about in honor terms, which is of course very similar. Thomas Schelling famously said, reputation was the only thing worth fighting for. Um, but reputation is important in the process of, of conflict. And women on average are are just less interested in in doing that. So, um, so that was very interesting to us. Um, and on the whole, uh, yes, uh, there do seem to be uh, some differences.
0: So, if that wasn't already a big enough question, um, the obvious follow-up is why? Why are there differences?
2: <laughs> well, the why, the why is the scary question a little bit for us because uh, it's contentious. It's and it's contentious for for good reasons, uh, anyways. Um, so, I think uh, there has been a, a, a very um, important. Resistance to uh, essentializing, and so we don't want to do that. And so, so we wouldn't want to say, uh, you know, that women are always a certain way, or men are always a certain way, or or anything like that. And um, I guess over the past, um, you know, really past century, um, there's been a kind of move within anthropology. Uh, and a broader cultural move to sort of define humanity as a kind of undivided thing. And what that has in part meant is assigning any differences to culture rather than anything that is innate. Culture or different uh, different experiences rather than anything that's innate. And, that has been very important and has allowed us to get over things like scientific racism, so-called. Um, and certainly, (laughs) certainly wouldn't want to contest that. Um, on the other hand, I do think it's important to ask and to allow ourselves to ask questions about uh, where biology and uh, gender interact and, um, and at least to think about the the influences of biology alongside the influences of culture and experience. And one way of doing that is to go to the animal kingdom and look there, which is really nice because it's much, much less controversial. Uh, And of course, people can do experimental studies. And the other thing about it is the biology of aggression. Uh, The biology of aggression is what the biologists call conserved, which means it goes really, really far back in evolutionary time. And so the gene sequences that control aggression, uh, the mechanisms of aggression in mice, and let's say humans, are extraordinarily similar. If you just put the DNA sequences up next to each other, uh, they kind of look the same. Um, almost exactly the same. The triggers for aggression are very different in mice and in humans, but the underlying biological mechanisms are are the same. Now, that's not exactly the same as a political preference, but it's it's in the ballpark. Let's say these things are complicated, and you know we we really can't get perfect answers, so we have to sort of use the evidence that's available to to sort of get a sense of things. Uh, admitting that we we simply don't have all the answers anyway when we go to the biological uh, to, to, to the animal kingdom I should say um, we see lots of gender differences in aggression and indeed there are some theories that have a, a good amount of, of support are somewhat contested in terms of um, in terms of the details but still have a good amount of support that uh, that seem to explain what um, these differences in aggression. A, a famous one is the level of parental investment. And so when, when men are, uh, are um, involved more in the parenting, uh, then they tend to be uh, smaller in size relative to, uh, to females. And I said men, but of course I mean male animals. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so, so in those cases, when there's more male parenting investment, we see these differences uh, we see the effect on size and in addition to the effect on size, we see an effect on aggression. So uh, the male animals tend to be less aggressive in those cases when there's more parenting investment because then their um, the competition uh, for uh, procreation is is of a different is of a different sort. Um, so yeah so so in the animal kingdom we see these differences. we can, uh, explain them to to some degree, um, but nevertheless, um, sort of translating that to to humans is of course uh, is of course a significant sort of of a leap, and um, and I don't think we have all the answers there. Um, what we can say from the animal studies is that it really looks like gene expression is playing a really big role. That is if we look in mice, it's what genes are expressed, not fundamental differences in, let's say, brain architecture or anything else between male and female mice. So it seems to be about gene expression. That is, you know, if you express certain genes in a mouse, you can make the female mouse behave like the male mouse and vice versa which is actually an amazing thing to see. And I recommend the, some of the video. Uh, Catherine Dulac is, is one of the extraordinary researchers in this area. She's a neuroscientist at Harvard, and, and she has some of her video of these things online, which um, are not for the faint of heart, but are extraordinary, extraordinary to, uh, to see. But so, you know, if, we, if we're willing to make this leap from animals to humans, then it looks like It's really about gene expression. It's not about fundamental differences in brain architecture, which right away tells you that it's not really biological determinism because the environment can also influence gene expression, but different genes are differently expressed in male and female mice and in men and and women as well. So (laughs) to sort of sum things up, um, number one, we don't really know whether it's biology or culture. We do know that culture has a big influence, right? But we also know that in places where the women seem to be more aggressive than the women are in other places, very often the men in those places where the women are aggressive are even more aggressive than the women are. Um, But but we know that culture has, has a huge effect, right? Um, but we think, based on the evidence, in part from the animal kingdom, that it looks like maybe there can also be some effects of biology, not in the sense of biological determinism, but in the sense of which genes are being expressed and how that relates to to gender differences. So, <laughs> That's um, sort of where we come down. We think it's possible, therefore, that small hormonal differences lead to big societal effects, including at the level of war and peace, which when you get down to it is a pretty extraordinary thing. That's the way it looks to us. But as I say, it's uncertain.
0: Thank you for taking us through that. It is often the scary thing, is trying to figure out why. And of course, in this sort of um, aspect as well, when there's so many different pieces and possibilities. Um, So thank you for weaving us through um, that logic, which of course is also done very deftly in the book. Um, And talking about these societal implications, I was wondering if we could discuss maybe some of the instances, some of the examples of the way, how these gender differences that we've now heard from the data are there. We have some ideas about why they are there. So how does this actually manifest in practice when we're talking about different preferences for war and peace? Jocelyn, do you want to take this one? Uh, sure. So in the book we focus predominantly
1: on on voting. We focus some on on activism as well. Uh, but so we focus on voting as a primary mechanism for integrating preferences. Uh, you know, I think anyone who lives in a democracy can attest to the fact that you may have many preferences that are not, in fact, expressed or acted upon by your elected leaders. So we do have notions that, you know, democracies, when do, when do they manage to actually uh, translate preferences and, and average preferences within a population into actual policy? And uh, I I think there's still a lot of debate uh, there that political scientists have made some headway. But I do think that we know that, you know, the saliency of particular topics can really have an effect. And I think that war and peace tends to be one of those. It tends to be an incredibly salient topic when it is on the agenda uh, of an election. If it's an issue, then it tends to be one that people feel Quite passionately about, um, so our our intuition initially was that you know would you know it, it, when when truly conf- confronting the the potential costs uh, of war in terms of human lives, financial uh, financial costs. You know, would voters actually act and, and vote upon their preferences for war and peace, and and so that's you know pretty much the, the fundamental m- mechanism here uh, is all, is in the act of voting, but is also you know in the act of politicians trying to determine how to get the vote uh, that they also can recognize uh, important you know salient topics uh, for the the voting public, what's going to get people to the polls. And so I think we also see a a history of politicians essentially adjusting their own positions in the course of campaigning uh, to accord with what they believe are going to be potentially the preferences of of women uh, for peace, but also other times for the preferences of men uh, for war. Um, so I, I think that you see both of these things. You see politicians acting as, you know, democracy would in part suggest they should by adjusting to where they believe there are strong uh, inclinations for votes. Uh, and you see, you know, voters in essence also potentially punishing electors, uh, you know, elected officials who don't fulfill their, their, um, you know, their particular preferences for, for war and peace. Um, so I think that's you know one one possible way uh, that we see see this happening maybe Robert has some some other mechanisms to add here um, but I think that that's a, a, a key way and then I think that um, th- you know, in addition to that, even within democracies, you know, it, it can also be that that you know, again, elected officials are not behaving as, you know, some voters would prefer. And so that you still have strong components of activism amongst women on behalf of peace. And we talk about in the in the Book, uh, you know that in in uh, Israel uh, that you had this this four mothers protest movement uh, about uh, Israeli forces that were positioned uh, within Lebanon, and that this became a you know they became essentially did not feel like their votes in were enough. They had not essentially uh, compelled any change in Israeli foreign policy. Uh, and as mothers of soldiers who were positioned in Lebanon, they drew a lot of attention to themselves and uh, politicians, you know, essentially acknowledged eventually that the, these, this mother's movement that drew attention to this uh, occupation, as they called it, uh, had been responsible for bringing them around and for changing the, the national rhetoric and understandings of, of, you know, what was seen to be acceptable. Um so I still think that even when women have the vote obviously with all of us in, in democracies we know we still have to be uh, active and making sure that our our preferences are actually represented on the ballot and that uh, you know that that our uh, elected officials are are following through.
2: Could I maybe uh, add sure. one thing there? Sure. Please. It just it's it's um, it strikes me you know when we're asking this question that Today, it's almost conventional wisdom that there is a democratic peace. And what we believe there is that these early 19th century liberals, people like Immanuel Kant and uh, Thomas Paine and some earlier folks like Montesquieu, that um, they, you know they had these brilliant ideas that democracy, the institutions of democracy we're going to harmonize the interests of rulers and ruled, such that the people fighting the wars were also going to be the people ultimately making decisions, and they wouldn't want to bear the costs of war. And I think we we sort of give that a pass and think that that is sort of largely correct. And um, on the other hand, we have these suffragists that. You know, Jocelyn was describing some of their views earlier, and of course, they were fighting for these, these goals, right? They're fighting for the goal of uh, peace in many cases, much more than even the goal of voting in and of itself. They were, you know, they thought they were going to change the world with women voting. That didn't mean to them just that women were going to vote. It, mean, it meant that things that women were going to vote for would be different and what men were voting for. And they thought that women would bring about peace. And I think today, nobody takes that idea very seriously, actually. Um, And certainly for a hundred years after women's suffrage, the conventional wisdom was that it had almost no effect on political outcomes. It had a big effect in the sense that women could vote, but in terms of other outcomes, it had almost no effect. That was conventional wisdom. Many of the suffragists felt like they had failed. And so, um, and so you know, I think it turns out that actually what we're beginning to understand is that it's it seems to be almost just the reverse. Uh, that is, the faith of the early liberals in the institutions of democracy doesn't really seem to be borne out. Those institutions are important because they allow the voice of the people to be heard. Let's say, but it really is a question of who's voting and what are their preferences more than it is just what are the institutions that are allowing or or not allowing voting. So I think, you know, that's a to me is is a fast was a fascinating thing to re, to realize. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'll just say, I'll just say uh, two other quick things. One, just to, to get it out there, is that the, uh, the, the findings that we had when we were analyzing these things statistically, which we did in many different ways, was that democracies, two democracies are almost, um, well, let me put it this way, two autocracies are uh, almost four times as likely to fight as to women's suffrage democracies. And we don't find that much evidence uh, that democracies without women's suffrage are less likely to fight at all.
0: Hmm. So this, in fact, I think raises a really interesting point that I'm hoping um, you both can expand on a bit as it does in the book. Because, of course, we've been, I guess, implying a little bit that the idea here is that when women get the vote, therefore, there are no more wars, right? That it's kind of that direct a line. And the idea, Robert, that you just mentioned of and suffragists thought that then they had failed when this didn't happen, kind of is a false thing, right? War and peace, it's, it's much trickier than that, right? It's sort of what agreements are accepted to end a war what's the bar that has to be passed in order to start a war what sort of actions are considered okay during a war right there's all these other questions and if we just think of it as did they stop wars yes or no we miss out I think on a lot of ways in which um, there can still be influence of preferences um, kind of below or within that binary so Could you maybe tell us a bit about sort of what you found looking at these places and times to sort of understand when we see influence of women's votes, um, even if it's not the kind of goal that suffragists were initially hoping for of no more war ever?
1: Yeah, I can get us uh, started on that one. I mean, I, I think that there's a few different ways to understand the win. As you say, I mean, obviously... This was not. Uh, this was not a, a binary. I mean, yes, the women got the vote. There was still war. Uh, the system, you know, as Robert was suggesting, you know, there are times when when whole populations will support the idea of, of you know, engaging in conflict in order to protect the their homeland. Or, uh, you know, I think that there's a number of conditions under which, uh, you know, people can be be pushed into conflict. Uh, and it's also the case that you know, even if you have one country that is democratic and has a preference for peace, it does not mean they, they may live in a neighborhood in which that is not true of their neighbors. And so they can still end up in war. And so there's a multiple reasons that even if you have kind of increasing preferences for peace uh, in electorates throughout the world, that this does not translate to a lack of war. Um, I I will, you know, just to kind of put this all in temporal perspective or historical perspective, you know, our data uh, on on uh, probability of war and peace, uh, instances of war and peace or conflict more broadly Broadly goes back to roughly 1816 uh, and continues up to the current day. So this was the time span that we assessed uh, statistically. Um, And of course, you know, for much of this uh, period from 1816 up until 1893, there were very few democracies and those that were democracies had no women voters. And so for a good chunk of that data, you know, we didn't have any variation to really draw on to make any sort of, uh, to, to look at any particular correlations. But so in in 1893, you know, you see women starting to get the vote in New Zealand uh, and then Australia, Iceland, not particularly in that order, but you had a a cluster of countries uh, early on. Um, And then after roughly 1955, you have a a very, very high number of democracies, and pretty much all democracies that exist have women voters. And so you have this time span between 1893 and roughly 1955, in which you actually have variation across all dimensions. You have autocracies and democracies, and you have some democracies with and without women's suffrage. And so this was the time span that we we focused a lot of attention to. This also, um, you know, helps us in other ways, because we have... all of these other explanations for why we have seen fewer great power wars since 1945. And a lot of those point to the existence of nuclear weapons or the the Cold War and the balancing of geopolitical uh, uh, rivalries, uh, potentially economic um, you know the idea of an economic peace, and so we have all of these ideas that explain you know shifts in kind of patterns of war and peace after 1945. But we focused a lot of our analysis on the period prior to World War II, and in fact, this is where we generated a lot of these key differences in seeing that um, that yeah, democracies uh, that have uh, that had no women voters did not seem to be uh, any more or any. Yeah, less warlike than their autocratic counterparts. Um, so that kind of gets at this, the kind of put the putting things in historical dimension and, and, you know, very cognizant of all of the ways that statistics can lead us astray. We tried to employ a lot of techniques that helped us get as close as we could to being, you know, or essentially increased our confidence as much as we could that these were um, actually you know, strong and meaningful correlations. Uh, The book, we obviously go into numerous case studies as well in hopes of, you know, adding qualitative support to our our intuitions and our statistical findings. But back to your... other point about when exactly uh, you know, do we see these uh, you know the influence of women's voter, votes. And, and I think as Roberts you know alluded or has stated earlier, right like countries can go to war for a number of different reasons. Uh, and you know reputation may not be as compelling to some voters as it is to others. Um, conversely, some surveys have actually found that in some cases in which the cause of war is to go and prevent humanitarian suffering, in those cases, they've actually found that women voters may have a higher uh, approval ratings for the use of force. And so, again, this, you know, this is a, a, a really, um, you know, rich and, you know, essentially multidimensional space here when we're sp- describing war and peace, obviously. And, and, uh, and what we have generated are these, these what we have, uh, the book talks about are, is kind of these fundamental shifts. Um, but as you say, as you suggest, there's there's a lot of complexity here, and uh, there's so much more research to be done, I think, is, is kind of the good news for those who are looking for, you know, if the topic is of interest, there's so many other different dimensions of pathways to go on to, to really figure out, you know, what's happening here.
0: Always an exciting thing to learn. Robert, is there anything you'd like to add?
2: Um, you know, I think I'll add just one thing, uh, which is, you know, as on this question of when, what we find is an interaction between suffrage and the quality of democratic institutions. So lots of autocracies have women's suffrage, they say, but the voice of the people, be they man or woman, is is not being heard in those cases. And there's just huge variation in the quality of democratic institutions. And if that quality is low, then having suffrage isn't going to help so much. And certainly one aspect of the quality of democratic institutions are the protections for women who are going to the ballot box, which you might think is something that exists everywhere in the world now, but it is not so actually. Yes, everywhere in the world just about has a formal uh, women's suffrage, but, the women who are going to the polls are not always protected. It's not always such an easy thing for them to do. So just to give you an example, in Afghanistan in 2013, uh, there was a rule adopted uh, requiring body searches when entering polling stations, which uh, was you know, culturally offensive to women and not something that they could even, even if they were willing to submit to, it was not something that necessarily would be uh, accepted for for them to submit to. Similarly, in two thousand nineteen, uh, there was uh, another law adopted requiring that people uh, going to polling stations had to be photographed. Well, in Afghanistan, it's not always acceptable to reveal your face if you're a woman. And so that was uh, yet another deterrent to women uh, who were uh, going into a polling station. So, So the the quality of democratic institutions and the protections for women who are going to vote are still things that vary greatly around the world, and um, and I think that's you know that's worth being aware of, and and it's, it's an issue for things like foreign policy of of countries that are involved, let's say, in nation building, because you know, to take the United States as an example, which, uh, you know, has been involved in, in that, uh, in, in somewhat recent years, when the United States goes in and tries to build a democracy, there are questions and there are trade-offs that it has to weigh and how it does that. And, uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, There has been a trade-off in some cases between advocating for women's rights and protections on the one hand, and um, advocating for other institutions of democracy. And in some cases, the United States has really decided in favor of, well, we don't think we can get women's rights, so we're really going to focus on these other aspects of democracy. And I think that this work is is sort of highlighting uh, some of the drawbacks to that approach.
0: Thank you for adding that in. I think those are some really interesting and important points to kind of bring to this discussion. I want to, in some senses, stay in the ballot box or at least in the ballot booth, but think about the names actually on the ballot itself, right? Because we've been talking about women as activists, women as voters. But of course, we also have women as leaders, women as candidates that can be voted for. And I was really interested in the book that you examine um, kind of this aspect of gender preferences when it comes to war and peace. Um Now, we obviously haven't seen that many female leaders of democracies, um, but there doesn't seem to be, at least from the naked eye, a particular correlation between having a female leader and not having war. Um, So, Robert, could you maybe take us through sort of what we need to understand when we think about, you know, to what the, the challenging the myth of, oh, well, if the whole world was ruled by women, then there would be no war.
2: Yeah, it's not that simple. It <laughs> turns out uh, we uh, we thought maybe it would be, um, and we started to look at it, a- and some other folks, I should say, we we also drew on some really excellent research uh, by by some other folks, um, but um, it's hard to figure out, right? It, it's hard to figure out what the effect of having a female leader or a male leader is, and um, all the work that we're doing on leaders and and on voting publics is from observational data. So there is a sort of question mark over all of it. I think it's important to say, um, you know, we're doing the best that we can and we're using uh, all sorts of techniques to get it in different ways, but it's not as good as if we could just do an experiment. But in the case of women leaders, you have this particular problem, right? Because they come to power in particular contexts. So you know maybe, Women leaders come to power when um, it's very peace, It's very peaceful, you know. Otherwise, maybe they wouldn't be elected, for instance. And so there's, you know, all aspects of that context are going to influence the correlation between having a leader of a particular gender and whether there is conflict or or not. So it makes it really hard to figure out. And um, the the work that was the most convincing to us in trying to get at this question was work that looked at um kings and queens so not not from yesterday um but had a a lot of data on kings and queens and what they do is they use something called an instrument and the a statistical instrument to get at this and the instrument in this case was the gender of a monarch's firstborn child which is randomized, which may, means it has some nice properties, and um, and then isn't a certain predictor of whether the next leader is going to be a man or a woman, but influences that, right? And since it's randomized, it shouldn't be so correlated with other things, which makes it a good instrument. And um, and so we looked at that study, and lo and behold, in that study, uh, it showed that the queens were more likely to go to war than the kings. And so that's very interesting. And then they they look at a number of different possible uh, explanations for this. Um, you know they, for instance, look at whether there's a difference between young queens and older queens because you might think that the you know you just might have the idea, not that it's true, that these um, these queens were being sort of dominated by by male advisors or something like that. Well, they thought, well, if that's true, then that should be more true of the younger queens than the older queens. So is there, you know, is there, do we see an effect there? And the answer is no, actually, it's it's not true. It, it looks like um, the older queens are maybe even the ones who are who are very warlike. So uh, we looked at some more recent data and uh, took a look at correlations there. And we looked at um men and women in the U.S. Congress. And um, we did a variety of analyses. And um, basically, at the very least, there's no evidence that the women are more likely to advocate peace, the female leaders. And if anything, consistent with the study of kings and queens, it looks like the opposite. So... That's the finding. And then the question is, why is that? Um, And I think there are sort of two obvious explanations. Uh, One is that there's something about the process of leader selection. That means that women leaders are just very different from the population of women as a whole. And possibly the uh, male leaders are very different from uh, the population of men. And the other explanation um, which I think we sort of tend to a little bit, although I, again, I think it's, it's not possible to really, uh, separate these effectively. The other explanation is that women leaders are so-called hiding type in some way that in effect, they are participating in a culture, which is a certain way. There are certain expectations of them and, uh, for instance, if they're expected to be more pacific because of their gender, that can be dangerous for them. And as a result, they have to really prove that they can do it just like the men can. And uh, and that may be forcing them in some sense um, to, be, to be a little bit more aggressive uh, than they otherwise would be, which is not to say that women leaders on average would be more pacific if it weren't for this, but I think we, we need to hold out that possibility. And I'll just say one last thing, which is that if we want to really see the, the potential of, of women leaders, I think we maybe have to think about the cultures of what it means to be a leader that women inhabit when they are leaders. Maybe we need to understand that a little bit differently. Uh, So maybe we need broader cultural change uh, before we can really see a change at the level of leaders. Because more than we, I think, often realize, the leaders are really responding to the populations and and what the expectations are in the populations uh, than we often appreciate.
0: Thank you for explaining both the kind of what's happening and also why um, and what we might look to in the future, given um, what could be changing. And sort of on that idea, we've been talking through this fascinating kind of the statistics, the studies, pulling it all together, how this has happened um, in different places, in different times. And there's some really kind of, I think, obvious implications of what we've discussed so far of kind of what we might see at the moment, how these things might be currently playing out around us. But I'd love to surface some of those, make some of those a little bit more explicit. So how might we see or how do you think we might find gender differences, gender different gender preferences for war and peace shaping current politics? I don't know if Robert, you want to start with this?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, there, I think it's shaping politics all around us and maybe the most interocular case is the case of Japan, because actually of all the countries we looked at, that was the place that had the largest, um, uh, gap in preference, political preferences, uh, over war and peace, uh, between the genders. Um, it was really, it's like really, really a, a huge gap there in all the surveys that, that we looked at. Um, and it's a place where uh, a few years ago, the Abe government wanted to change the constitution. They wanted to change it so that Japan could actually use its army abroad. And the reason why they wanted to do that was basically because they wanted a closer alliance, uh, e- an even closer alliance with the United States. They wanted to be able to, to participate when the US military was, was doing things around the world. And the Abe government, lobbied the people to try to get that done. But in order to do this, it needed to convince a sizable fraction of the people in order to change the Constitution. And it tried very hard to do it. And it was able to convince at one point, not for that long, but at one point it was able to convince more than half the men. In Japan and so it really looks like if it weren't for women voting probably the Constitution would have changed in Japan but as hard as it tried the government could not convince more than a third of women to support the policy which meant that by a large margin it was going to fail and So we did not get a change in the Japanese constitution. And then you think about the follow on effects of that, right? because if the constitution is changing in Japan and Japan is perceived as a more militaristic state, what happens to the whole security architecture in Asia? How do all the other countries respond? How does the world become potentially more militarized? when these changes occur. So I think that's, you know, that's to me one of the fascinating contemporary cases, but there are sort of lots of these cases um, and, and lots of ways that I think when a group has the vote, they have um, a political power, there's a meaning behind social movements with which they're associated that though that similar movements when they don't have the vote just don't have. So we we see similar social movements. You know, we see women's movements for peace. Not just not that it's only women who are advocating for peace. Obviously uh, men are, are involved also, but in some cases we do see uh, specifically women's movements, and we see them before and after suffrage, but we can really feel the palpable difference when they have the vote and the leaders of the day know that they have to pay attention.
1: Yeah. So I, I'll uh, jump in here if I may. I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, it's It's such a fascinating thing to figure out, you know, how, how is this thing? So we went and we found this, this mechanism. We were convinced by evidence from surveys and statistics and uh, all of these historical case studies, and then you kind of look around you. And I think that there's this kind of notion of, but the world doesn't seem that peaceful. And so how is what you're telling me, you know, how how do we make sense of that? And if it is exactly, how do we know where it is? And I think that, you know, this is just kind of a, it's a really tricky and kind of puzzling thing, right? I, as As Robert mentioned earlier, for a long time, there was the assumption that in kind of the One of the biggest political transformations that's ever occurred in in world history, which was bringing in half of the world's population into the electorate. For a long time, it was assumed that this had very very little substantive effect on our world. And yet we've seen, you know, with statistics, uh, uh, you know, with, with work uh, done across a number of different fields, that in fact, substantial things did happen. The size of government increased and infant mortality went down and healthcare spending went up. And there, there are another, uh, you know, a range of other uh, implications that we now associate uh, with giving women the vote, but that they were just really hard to detect at the time. Because they didn't seem revolutionary. They didn't seem transformational in the way that we would expect them to. And so I guess that's, you know, the the takeaway is really, it can be affecting the world as, you know, everywhere, but the counterfactual is just very, very difficult to to identify. Um, And yeah, so I, I think that you know the case of Japan is a is a really interesting one in which you know Article Nine stands today. It may not forever, right? It could be that you know if if it was essentially Japanese women start to feel genuinely threatened by external powers, that they too may come to support uh, conflict and and the you know self de- the creation of self defense forces in Japan again. Um, but you know I think that that it, it can be very hard to to identify in other cases. Another case we talk. About in the book is a case of Liberia, and again that is a, another case where it's it's a pretty interocular case in which you actually had women who were fighting against protesting um, the you know prolonged and and horrible blood, uh, civil war there, and that they essentially positioned themselves you know they uh, I, I you know outside of, of the negotiations, the political negotiations, and, uh, essentially threatened to, to strip naked, uh, if the men came out and, and witnessed this, that this was going to be seen as, is like the most, uh, you know, distinct form of shame. Uh, and so you saw these just true, uh, acts of, of sacrifice on the behalf of Liberian women who would later go on to, um, kind of implement democracy with Sir, uh, with, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and, uh, uh, and yeah, so it's just you you sometimes have these cases in which the effects are are really uh clear, but you know, in, in others it can be very difficult to determine.
0: Mm. Thank you for taking us through um those cases and giving us kind of a sense of what to look for, and that it is a bit about peering around and thinking it through, um, which of course makes it very fascinating to look at, and obviously the book goes into loads of detail. We've just sort of done a highlights tour, so anyone intrigued should definitely pick it up. And that leads me only to my final question, which is kind of now that we know where we are at now and what we might look for in the future when we look at elections and policies around the world, um, is there anything either of you are working on now or next now that this book is done that you'd like our audience to be aware of, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic? Uh, yeah, I'll just jump in briefly. Um, so what I'm working
1: on now is seemingly quite distinct. I've transitioned to thinking about the implications of artificial intelligence on um, international relations and, and related topics. But in, in kind of bringing in this point on gender, it's something that I've thought a lot about in terms of risk taking when we think about technological innovation. And are there potentially you know, uh, gender differences and, and how likely uh, you know, you are to, to take particular risks and innovate in ways that could create societal harms, uh, and what that might mean for how we should distribute power and decision-making authority within, you know, tech tech companies and those who regulate them. So that's, uh, something related to the, the work I'm doing today.
2: Um, oh, well, I just want to say one quick thing about voting and then, uh, I'll say what I'm working on. Um, you know, I just want to say that I think voting, it's fascinating because it, it's so much taken for granted in the world today, particularly surveys show by young people. Uh, they, don't, they don't think it's a much smaller percentage say that it's essential to live in a democracy uh, than, than did uh, even a decade or two ago. And I find this frustrating and I always want to ask uh, my students or sometimes I do ask my students which of their rights they'd, they'd like to give up um they they uh, look at me like i'm i'm just silly and not understanding things but um but the thing about voting that i think this work also brings out is is this privacy aspect of it and how amazing that actually is you know it's like if you contrast the effects of uh gender gendered leaders versus the effects of gendered voters i think that's just fascinating right leaders are out there they are in the public what they do has to be conforming to societal standards and a result of of how they of the image that they project in the world but people in the privacy of a voting booth can do whatever they want it doesn't require the social sanction of anybody else be they of your gender or of another gender and so i think that is to me, an, an extraordinary privilege, and one of the most extraordinary um, aspects of the modern world, in some sense, uh, that that power derives from that sort of private individual moment. Um, and so, anyway, I hope you don't give it up. But uh, I'll say, uh, I'll actually answer your question now, uh, which was, "What am I? What am I working on?" And uh, somewhat similar to Jocelyn, I'm also uh, thinking about how we design international institutions to govern govern artificial intelligence. Um, the, uh, the emerging technologies of the day, and in particular artificial intelligence, uh, are the things that have, um, I would say, worried me the most uh, recently in terms of uh, what they mean for the world and what's likely to happen if we don't get governance Uh, of these technologies right. And I think some people hold out hope for sort of technical solutions to technical problems. But I think if we look historically, what we see is that very often there actually isn't a technical solution to a technical problem. We actually need a social solution. And um, so that's what I'm working on now.
0: Well you both clearly like tackling big questions (laughs) so thank you for sharing that with us um, and best of luck with all of those projects. Listeners who have been intrigued by our discussion can pick up the book we've been talking about titled The Suffragist Peace How Women Shape the Politics of War published by Oxford University Press. Jocelyn and Robert thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much Miranda it was a pleasure. Thank you so
2: much.